All right, we're going live, we're going live, we're going live. This is always really, really exciting. This is so exciting. I'm going to put my sunglasses on. We are definitely live. What's up, everybody? We are here for a very extra special data on Kubernetes session. That's going to be an intro to persistence talking about storage, getting some of the you know background groundwork um, under our belts to get started with this, because we understand that working with data on Kubernetes, if working on Kubernetes is a challenge, working, on, working with data on Kubernetes brings an extra special set of challenges. But that's why we have two amazing guests here. I'm gonna dedicate our wrap before we get started out, just so we can get the right amount of energy. Remember, you can get your questions and comments going in the YouTube chat. We'll be happy to address them there. I was just talking to the speakers as well. If for whatever reason, we don't get to address some of those questions here in the session today, we can continue the conversation on Slack um, and get those answered later this week. So let's start out with a little acapella wrap. You can call us Robin Hood because we're taking down the share. I'm about to go into storage with Kunal and Eric. Clerical errors aside, we bring in persistence to the game. Take these speakers, go up to 11 loud and clear with volume claims. So keep the questions flowing like Nile Tigris and Ganges. Make awards go down. We're clearing out the Oscars and Grammys. That's how we do it. Sunglasses come off now. We're deleting rap mode. But that being said, Got to start out the right way. As I said, we have two amazing speakers with us today. We have Eric Zitlo, we have Kunal Kutwaha, both very experienced practitioners, both very experienced content creators as well. You can check out Kunal's YouTube channel. Eric's got plenty of stuff too on YouTube talking specifically about this topic. Um, but just to introduce both of you really quickly, Eric, who are you and what are we going to be talking about today? Yeah, yeah. So I'm generally, uh, we'll call me a tech enthusiast, um, someone who's, who's been in the industry for a, a while here. Um, been in Kubernetes distributed systems for a number of years. Um, I, before Kubernetes, I was actually working on distributed databases. So again, data persistence was kind of my life. Um, you know, uh, Apache Cassandra. For anyone who's who's heard of it, I was I was working with that for many years. So um, yeah, I, I do a, a lot of or a little bit of a lot of things as well. Uh, been a software engineer, been a network engineer, been um, support. You know, you name it, I've probably done it. So. And Kunal, just for folks who may not know who you are, although I feel like that's increasingly unlikely, but just give us a refresher. No, it's very, very likely. Uh, hey, everyone. Uh, I'm Kunal. I am a CNCF ambassador. And like Pat mentioned, I do content creation. Um, currently doing developer advocacy stuff at Cebo Cloud. And uh, yeah, I host a, uh, we have the CNCF student community, which is what this session is in collaboration with. So we have some nice, you know, folks in the community and we do uh, cloud native sessions and webinars just like this one. Uh, I do have a YouTube channel. It's called Kunal Kushwaha only. So there I post tutorials and workshops and yeah, uh, I love communities. I love open source and uh, it's, that's pretty much about me. All right, very, very good. Eric, just to get a little bit of context, what makes this topic of data on Kubernetes so tricky for folks as an entry point? What are some resources that you might recommend? What's the best way to get started with this? Yeah, yeah, so the first thing from resources perspective, uh, Kubernetes docs, I, I know it's kind of cliche, but they are actually really, really good. Um, well-filled out docs that talk about pretty much everything we're gonna talk about today, all the different components. Um, we're gonna kind of build a chain of, of uh, infrastructure, if you will. And um, all of those components can be found in the docs. I can actually provide links as well as when we're talking about them. Um, why it's important, uh, this is the direction the world is moving. There, there's definitely been a trend towards containerization and now there's a trend towards uh, stateful containerization, which I, I don't wanna spoil anything for later, but um, this, is, this is really the way things are going, so. 
Very, very good. And Kunal, in your case, how do you get started with Kubernetes? And then after that, you know, one of the things that frequently comes up, and I'm sure it'll come up in Eric's presentation too, is we're talking about the difference between stateful and stateless workloads. Could you maybe touch on that? First of all, how you got into Kubernetes, and then, like I said, as an entry point into data on Kubernetes, what these two terms mean. Sure. So with like Gates, I... Uh... I'm a student. I'll be graduating next year. With Kates, I started, uh, I was looking for some Java projects to contribute to. So I found this Kubernetes Java client and it was pretty interesting by Red Hat Middleware. So I started contributing to that. That's how I learned about like Kubernetes. I agree with the point Eric made. The documentation of Kubernetes is one of the best. Uh, you know, it offers uh, in-depth explanation. And I think it's definitely beginner friendly as well because I started with that only as a beginner. Other resources I would recommend are, you know, first of all, attend meetups like this. <laughs> so you can ask questions related to, uh, if, if you want to learn about data on Kubernetes, definitely stay in touch with the data on Kubernetes community. Uh, join the Slack channel and stuff. But uh, there's also some amazing, uh, sp speaking just about like specific Kubernetes stuff, uh, you will also find plenty of amazing uh, YouTube courses. Just Google Kubernetes resources and Kubernetes tutorials. You will find plenty. Just the important thing is get started. Uh, there's no best resource or anything. People say, hey, can you suggest me some best resource? I don't think there's this like any. Some people like learning from documentation. Some people like learning from, um, you know, videos and tutorials. So it's totally up to, you know, what you like to do. But yeah, that's pretty much about it. Um, speaking good. of like yeah. stateful, uh, stateful, stateless applications, we can go on and on with that. But uh, for those of you who are like, since it's a student session just starting out, I'm I think you're familiar with Kubernetes. Um, so if you are familiar, like you might know there are like pods and containers. So containers, basically your application is running in an uh, you know, isolated environment. You can imagine it's like a box in which your application is running on the your host operating system. Uh, containers like run on like virtual machines or whatever. You can scale containers, downgrade containers. One thing you may know is that by default, if there's any data in your container and your container, let's say, gets corrupted or gets deleted, so that data will be lost. For example, if you have a, you know, I don't know if we have time to showcase a demo. Uh, I but, can I can draw this all out on a whiteboard too. We can we can get yeah, into yeah. it. <laughs> cool. I, I do think I have something, but uh, anyway, it's gonna take some time. But uh, speaking more about it, uh, you know, Eric will show you a nice demo. He has a nice whiteboard and everything. The basic thing that I'm saying is, your let's say your application is running in a container, a box, and uh, that container dies, gets deleted. That whatever, let's say you had a to-do list application and you had a few tasks listed, those will be lost. Okay. Container will not store the state. Um, so the state stateless applications basically mean that, uh, you know, you, um, uh, it's like an application and like a process in, in, in which the, the state does not get saved. So basically you have sessions of your application, right? Many people might be making requests or whatever. It does not depend on like previous session, the, the reference information about all the operations, it does not save that, okay? On the stateful applications, on the other hand, it uses a database, for example, to store some data or in simple terms, uh, store some state from the you know client request or some, and use that particular request to make further requests, okay? That information. So just in, in, in brief, uh, the session information, when it's stored, like on the server, for example, that is a stateful, application in stateless application no such application is stored every single you know <clears throat> operation you're making and things like that uh, and even in like containers and stuff if containers die or whatever 
you can definitely restart new containers without any any trouble that's like uh, one of the advantages so for example if you're talking about stateless versus stateful applications like bart was uh, mentioning so in stateless let's say it does not require your server to you know save the information about the you know sessions or states or whatever in stateful it does require to save some information related to the session in stateless another comparison we can make is like the design so since it's not storing any information the architecture is like simple as compared to stateful applications um stateless applications since they're not like not dependent on like such uh, databases or whatever then uh, the crashes when they happen containers go down or whatever uh, you can just spin up new containers new you know your new uh, instances or whatever so crash handling is very like easier as compared to like you know stateful applications in that you know you have uh, in this there's something called like high availability the servers here are regarded like uh, uh they're long living and uh, user would uh, probably be like uh, uh you know it, it does not like really we, let's we can also talk about like the architecture so like the scaling architecture for example so if you want to stay if you want to scale stateless applications then it's much much easier as compared to uh your your stateful applications for example uh there's there are a few challenges when we're talking about like stateful applications so for example resources so many containers that you may have you know uh for example they may have some uh, resource allocation for example you might say this container should only run let's say this much amount of cpu or storage or storage or memory so if you have such such if you have such containers a stateless application you know which be which will be much suited but when it comes to like some stateful stateful applications then in that case this can not be a very good thing because there is now risk of losing data of like your customers or whatever and uh, have unreliable performance for example so uh, another point can be like related to storage so every like stateful application uh, like we mentioned previously will need some sort of a storage associated with it so like uh, a file system or a cloud storage or whatever now it can be difficult to like determine like uh, what kind of backup do you need for this and if you want to migrate from one cluster to another cluster how do you migrate like the database or whatever and one more thing that you know such challenges exist is because initially the organizations like uh, you know the the applications they were not designed like stateful was like com coming like afterwards you know uh, initial like stateless applications are very popular because um, they offer like your uh, you know it's like it's like very fast and like portability and everything so uh, it removes the overhead of creating and using sessions and it scales horizontally very well you can create new instances and this consistency across applications uh, so that's like uh, it makes it much more comfortable for maintenance and like to work with it um both of the to answer your question like uh, stateful versus stateless which one would you use it's not a this or that question i think it totally depends on like the use case um you know what your application does if you're maintaining the state or not uh but yeah i think if you have any questions like i mean eric can touch a lot lot yeah. more upon that as well yeah yeah we're going to we're going to touch on a lot of that throughout the the session here today but yeah like really good overview all right, right i can jump right yeah, in jump right in like, thank you yeah. very much kunal great outline right, yeah no worries me... Go ahead and share my screen. Give me two seconds here. Uh, doo -doo 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 -doo. All right, we're gonna try this on a whiteboard today. This is actually the first time I've done this live. So hopefully it kind of works out. All right, so y'all should be seeing a whiteboard now. Um, so real quick in the chat, just so I can get some idea of how the, the level of the audience here, how many people have actually interacted with Kubernetes in production before? Can I just get a, a quick show of hands in the YouTube chat? 
And I'm realizing now that there's about a, a five to six second delay here. So <laughs> try to uh, try to keep things running with that. Okay. Um, once you've done that, uh, just start uh, yelling out different components that make up Kubernetes. So um, you know, I'll start with one. I'm going to say um, the master is obviously a, an important component for Kubernetes. So let's let's throw that down. All right, so a master is basically a computer, right? It's a, it's a computer that is going to control all the other computers in Kubernetes. Okay, not totally beginner, not, okay. So a lot of really intro level stuff here. It sounds good, we can work with that. Um, so in Kubernetes, a, a Kubernetes cluster is just a grouping of computers that are all there to accomplish a job. You can think about it like a, um, basically a cluster with nodes in that cluster and then a manager managing all of those nodes. And when we deploy a job, uh, it basically sends that job to some compute resources. Um, you know, the jobs in Kubernetes are, are handled inside of pods and containers. These are, these are terms we'll define a little bit better, but essentially those jobs get sent out to a computer where they're run. And then if that you know, pod doesn't need to live anymore, we can kill the pod. Or if that pod is maybe stateful, like Kanal was, was kind of alluding to, um, then we have to do some stuff to, to make sure data sticks around. So first off, we have a master. Um, next, we're going to need some workers. So I'm just going to, uh, for example here, I'm just going to throw up two workers. Um, worker, and I'm just going to make two of these real quick. Uh, and there. Okay. So we have our master, we have our workers. And generally what happens is these uh, the master and the workers all have subcomponents, things that help them to run. So the first thing on your master that you're going to have is the API server. API server. Oops. Typing live is always an interesting endeavor. Okay, so your API server, that's how we as users interact with Kubernetes. When you go into kubectl, that's actually uh, talking with the Kubernetes API server. A lot of the things you use that expand Kubernetes functionality will actually extend that API server and, and add additional commands you can run. Um, there are also some HTTP uh, clients to, to run against the API server. There's, there's a lot of really interesting ways to interact. The most common one you're going to see, though, is through kubectl, and that will talk to the API server for you. So you can actually run a kubectl apply and then apply a YAML and, and do everything that way. Next piece is going to be your controller manager. And controller manager, controller manager is basically the thing that's going to work on um, kind of the, the jobs. It actually works alongside the scheduler. And together, those will take the incoming jobs, the incoming requests for work, and they will send them out to the correct workers. They basically work together to make sure everything ends up in the right location. Next, we have this thing called etcd. And etcd is kind of a, a secret sauce component here. Um, etcd is just a key value store. It, is, it just keeps track of all the different components inside Kubernetes, how they're interacting, what they're, if you tagged it, if they're named, whatever 
those things are so that you can reference them inside Kubernetes and other Kubernetes components can reference them. That's actually really, really important because what we're going to do here today is we're going to basically make a chain of components that all reference the last component. So um, storage in Kubernetes or persistence, the way we provide persistence, isn't just as simple as plugging in a USB stick somewhere. There's actually a, a kind of a path we have to follow down to get where we need to go here. So etcd stores all these relationships, tags, names, all of these things we're going to use to reference these different components. All right, next we have a uh, the kind of the, the star of the show in most cases. In Kubernetes, we have pods. And pods can be, uh, there can be many pods per worker. There don't have to be many pods per worker. It could just be one or two. But part of the advantage of Kubernetes is that we can divide things up via pods. Now, pods are the smallest unit of distribution. What that means is you're not going to ever have a pod that spans multiple workers. A pod will live on a single worker and will function on that worker in physical space. So if we think about this from a storage perspective, and let me just grab a here, let's say we have a hard drive. And this hard drive is connected to this worker. It's actually directly connected, right? The worker is just a computer. So this is the hard drive that's in the computer. And say, if we want this pod to consume that hard drive, well, this pod over here would have trouble because it wouldn't be connected. It would have no connection to that pod. So this is important to keep in mind. We're gonna look at uh, a local PV instance of how to do this, which is local, pers local persistent volume, which means we're dealing with direct attached drives. There are, we can get more complex and start adding in you know, network drives, SANs, all sorts of things. We can take it very, very far. But for now, just to illustrate the simple concept, uh, understand that we're gonna have hard drives that are attached to the workers. Okay, next component. Um, let's run through these really quick. We have a kubelet. Kubelets, which is essentially your Kubernetes process that runs on every node. It's it's the thing that when you um, you know look at a Kubernetes process on your node, you'd look for the kubelet. Eric, got um, a quick question. Uh, yeah, yeah. One, one worker node can have multiple pods, right? Absolutely, yes. And actually, um, depending on what your setup looks like, sometimes you'll have many, 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 many uh, pods in a single node. It, it just depends. So when in, um, just to use kind of the, the same example that Kanal used earlier, when you have like a to-do to app, if you had, say, a really, really large scale to-do app and you had a ton of people hitting it and it's a web-based, you know, a web app, you're going to have a web UI and you're going to need some sort of scaling to handle um, all of the loads. So what you can do is say I have maybe like I don't know, a small Kubernetes cluster, say three workers, one master. Um, if I have three pods and for some reason, all three pods are, you know, each, each worker has one pod, but I need to scale this. What I do is I just deploy more pods and then I could end up with, you know, maybe nine uh, pods on my three workers and it can, it can scale out like that. Um, so yeah, hopefully that answers the question. Um, we have here, we have another question. Uh, useful bear in mind, smallest possible logical unit that can be deployed. Yeah, exactly. Pods are the smallest possible unit of deployment in, in one sense. Um, the containers, we always hear about containers, containerization, Docker containers, Kubernetes containers. Containers are all the thing, right? Containers actually live inside of pods. 
So uh, one pod can contain multiple containers. And I'm sorry, this is going to be too small. So I'm not going to write containers. Just use your imagination and, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll go from there. But um, a pod can actually contain one or many containers. Now, again, if you think about this, if you have containers contained in a pod and you deploy them, they're not going to end up on different workers. They're going to end up on a single worker because the pod is the smallest unit of compute distribution, smallest logical unit that you can deploy, exactly. Um, all right, let's see, don't get the cubelet. Not sure exactly what that's in reference to. Uh, is this session for beginners? Yes, absolutely it is. All right, uh, next we're gonna take a look at the C advisor. <clears throat> so, oopsie, Ed. I am hitting all the wrong buttons on my keyboard. Whatever, we will make it work. Whatever, <laughs> I can't type. We'll just make that work. All right, so C advisor is basically local resource management for each of the workers. So when you have a worker, obviously we need to understand what how much compute is available. So how much RAM and how much CPU, how many CPU cores, are available on that worker. Now, when the job comes into the API server and the master says, I need to put this job somewhere, it doesn't necessarily know all the information about what's currently going on. But the C advisor is local to every single one of the workers and can basically report back how many resources are available, allowing the scheduler and the controller manager to make a smart decision and deploy that job where the load is you know, lowest, where the resources are available. So it really important. And then the last component here is going to be the other kind of magic piece. And I say this, proxy. I, I say this as someone who's worked as a uh, network engineer. In the past, when you wanted to connect to computers, you'd have uh, you know, you wanted to set up a, a kind of a, a multi. Uh, microservices architecture, you'd have to do a ton of networking to get there. You'd have to actually go physically plug in a bunch of switches, or if you had a, say, maybe an AWS cluster, you'd have to sit there in the console, wiring the whole thing up, setting up your, your groups, and you know putting all the resources in the right places. Well, Kubernetes does something really cool. You remember how I said etcd keeps track of everything? In Kubernetes, every single thing you interact with, create, or that's just natively part of Kubernetes is named. It's referenceable via that name. And Cube Proxy takes care of the networking component and obfuscates all of the actual IP addresses, all the actual routing using etcd. So now I can reference a service. For example, if I have a load balancer and I need to do something with that load balancer, I can do kubectl and reference that load balancer by name and tell it to forward something somewhere, or I can uh, take a service and and, and uh, you know expose that service to the outside world. And Cube Proxy does all the heavy lifting for me. Really, really cool. Let's see. Looks like we have another question here. Oh no! Looks like we have an answer. Awesome. All right. So next up, we are going to take a look at containers. So. We talked a little bit about stateless versus stateful. What's the problem with this setup if I were running a stateful workload? Can anyone tell me? For example, let's say I'm running a database and I've this pod right here is running a container and that container has a database. Anyone in chat there able to tell me what the problem would be with that situation?
Anyone at all? Looks like we have about 10 seconds of lag here between uh, when I talk and the uh, YouTube stream catches up. So we'll work with it. Uh, once the pod dies and is recreated, it won't know what, uh, yes, um, it, it basically has no way of actually storing that. So just like Knoll said, where if you had you know, a to-do app and you store a bunch of stuff in the to-do app and suddenly you take that pod down or that, that container goes away for any reason whatsoever, now you've lost your data right? You don't have the ability to reference anything that that pod had because that, that pod doesn't exist anymore. It's ephemeral, right? So as soon as it goes away, it's gone. You could reapply the YAML you used to create that pod, but that's not going to bring up the same pod. That's going to bring up a new instance of it, a brand new pod, basically from scratch, zero hour kind of uh, just blank slate, if you will. So what we need to do is we need to create persistence uh, for statefulness. So first thing we need to do is do what's called a stateful set. Now, a stateful set, let me see, I'm running out of room here. We'll just expand this up there a little bit. Okay, perfect. Uh, stateful sets are the key component of creating, defining something as stateful, basically, Every time a pod is deployed with a stateful set, it gives it a unique identifier. And that pod doesn't go away just because you took it down. That unique identifier is actually stored along with a bunch of state information. And then when you bring that pod back up, it actually brings up that same exact pod again. So instead of just bringing up a new image off the same template, we actually bring up the same pod. But this still has a problem because we can't just store something in a stateful set and hope it magically persists, right? We actually have to have a place to store that. Now, in, in the um, what I was talking about earlier, we have hard drives that are attached to workers, right? You need to run your OS from somewhere. You need to actually have direct attached storage somewhere in this stack, unless you're in the cloud. But even with services like AWS, GCP, Azure, you can get direct attached drives on your instances. And actually, in many cases, it's a very good idea to do so. So, we have a stateful set that's taking care of pod persistence, but it doesn't take care of data persistence. Data persistence needs to be handled a little differently. So the first thing we're gonna have to do to access the physical storage on any of our, our uh, machines is we're gonna have to create what's called a storage class. Now a storage class is a tool that Kubernetes uh, defines that essentially allows you to say, here's where my storage is. So we're just going to call it SC for storage class. Actually, you know, I should probably type that up. Storage class. Okay. Storage classes are a Kubernetes object. So when you go and you say kubectl um, get SC, that would give you a list of, of basically your storage classes, all the ones you've defined. Now, one of the complicated things, and this is why OpenEBS, uh, uh, Rancher Longhorn, and some other solutions exist, is defining your storage in a non-rigid way is very difficult. Either I have to know exactly what drive is connected and wire it up directly to the pod that I want it to live on, or live, 
I should say next to, it's container attached if you think about it. Um, I need to wire that up directly or I need to have a mechanism for doing that. Open EBS and Longhorn, both are tools for doing that automatically, but we're gonna kind of simplify it here. Um, I can talk about Open EBS a little bit in depth at the end of that. Of this, if people are curious, it's an open source project that I've, uh, yeah, I work for Maya Data, who is the main contributor to it for a while. So I'm pretty familiar with it. But um, yeah, there, there is a number of kind of nuances here. If you don't have a tool like Longhorn or OpenABS, you're going to have to define everything manually. And as you can imagine, that's a pretty brittle way of doing things, but it does get the job done in a pinch. So we create a storage class and that in that storage class, we reference our actual resources themselves. So next, we're going to need <clears throat> the a persistent volume claim. Now the storage class just creates basically a resource where these persistent volumes can live. So I'm actually gonna move this off to the side for now because what happens when we have a pod is we're gonna have a pod that's going to attach to something called a persistent volume claim or a PVC. Persistent volume claim is like a lease and it's actually a Kubernetes object. The, the actual lease itself is a Kubernetes object. So the pod is going to say, I am connected to a persistent volume claim. Generally, this is defined in the YAML and the persistent, persistent volume claim is gonna say, I am a claim on a storage resource, right? Storage resource that's defined by my storage class. And that storage class is going to basically hand off a persistent volume. Now, uh, persistence, sorry if I'm having any spelling errors here, I'm typing as fast as I can. So <laughs> um, that persistent volume is what is actually uh, the Kubernetes object that's basically wrapping your physical device. So uh, let's say, um, again, this pod right here is a database, let me, or this uh, container. So let's say uh, DB right there. We're gonna take, and it's going to uh, connect to a persistent volume claim, which is going to connect to a persistent volume. And that persistent volume is gonna be this hard drive right here from this storage class. Now there are ways to create pools of devices and then um, consume things from those pools. That's one of the things that OpenEBS does is it will actually create a pool of devices. And then it has this whole leasing system where you basically lease these devices, you can return them to the pools and do a lot of things. But again, that's maybe a little further than we're gonna to get to here today. Actually, we might we might actually have time for, for some OpenEBS magic, we'll, we'll see. Um, but uh, what we've done here is we've now provided a stateful container. Remember, we have this stateful setup here that uniquely identifies it. We have the persistent volume and volume claim that are associated with that. And those uh, particular components are registered with, or are, registered is maybe not the right word. They, they are stored within the stateful set, right? The information, the path to the physical device that's going to store our info is now recorded in the stateful set so we can get back to it. So now I can take that pod, I could kill that pod. And as long as I can bring that pod up in the same place or a place that has access to that persistent volume, I can get my data back. That's huge. That's really, really huge. So if I'm running a database, say I'm running, you know, uh, say Postgres, 
uh, Postgres. And I'm just, I've got the single node of Postgres and my app relies on this. And oh no, something happened and that pod went down. I can bring that pod back up. It reconnects that entire chain, the persistent volume claim and persistent volume. And I am now back online. Now, you might notice I said a key thing there where it needs to have access. The pod needs to have access because in just standard Kubernetes, there's very little to prevent my pod here from maybe spinning up over here. And if it spun up over there and this drive is direct connected to this over here, this worker, um, this worker might not have access to it, right? There'd be no actual path to get there. So, uh, that's where things like operators and, um, there's actually a lot of people who do helm chart, uh, hel well, kind of helm charts with operators, uh, which is basically a custom control loop sort of situation to make sure these things come up in the places where they used to be. That's getting to be much, much further down the road than we're probably going to get here today. But for now, understand if you bring up a pod, you set up your persistent volume claim attached to a persistent volume that's attached to a storage class that has a physical device behind it, right? Then you, you can actually achieve persistence in a Kubernetes cluster. Okay, how are we doing on time here? Um, oh, wow, we're doing fantastic. I have about 15 minutes left. Um, I can start taking questions here. We actually got through that way faster than I was planning. So um, in chat here, let me just see if anyone has... Any questions? Pod days won't be able to retrieve data. Yep, absolutely. They basically down start podcast now. Yep. Okay. Looks like we're all caught up on questions. Um, Bart, did you have any uh, questions here? No. So far, so good. Looks good. And and also, folks are helping each other on the chat, which is also really nice. So keep up the great work. Perfect. All right. Well, if you want, I could maybe show you kind of what uh, OpenEBS would do in this sort of architecture, and use it to illustrate. Um, oh, wait, we do it. We do have one question. Oh, yeah. So if we delete a pod, doesn't that keep spinning up again and again until we delete the deployment of that? So does the data keep getting refreshed again and again? That's really, really good catch. So in the situation where you're running a stateful set, generally you're running with an operator. Now, an operator is basically a custom control loop. What that means is, is you're actually custom defining the behavior of those pods. So yeah, you're entirely right. If we didn't do anything, we were using Kubernetes control loop and just letting it go. Um, yeah, the, the container would go down. We won't have state. Let's just be clear on that. We won't have any state stored, but that pod would just basically bounce, right? And, and that's not what we want. We don't want the... Uh, Fault tolerance of Kubernetes here is actually our enemy. <laughs> what we want to do is we want to define a behavior where the pod will, if it goes down, maybe we can have it spin back up automatically itself, but make sure it's the same container you know, via a stateful set. Or maybe we don't want it to just come back up. Maybe we want to be you know, having to do some of this manually. It depends, but that's where custom control loops come in. Uh, and that's that's actually uh, a really, really kind of key component to this. But yeah, good question. Um, so we don't need to back up the data that we draw. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. Um, snapshots, backups, all of those things that are really, really good to do. And I will say this, no matter what, even if you're running a distributed database with redundancy, do backups. And the reason is quite simple. This drive down here, is still a physical piece of hardware. It can still fail. That drive could literally just spin off the platters one day. It happens and it actually happens a lot. 
So even though I have this entire chain, I have all this containerization, I have all this cool persistence that Kubernetes provides or could provide, depending on how we've configured it, I will still lose my data if that physical drive goes away. So do backups, create snapshots, do whatever you got to do to make sure that your data is safe. Backups are, yeah, exactly. Backups are always a good habit. Absolutely. Um, I can't even think of uh, an instance where I would tell you not to do backups. I, so back working with uh, distributed databases, that was kind of a, a discussion that kept going around is, well, you have all these copies of the data. Don't you want to do, you know, why, why would you need to do backups when you have these active, active systems that never go down and you can just bootstrap in a new node and never have downtime? Well, what happens when you have someone who goes in and manually deletes something, you know, like does a, a truncate table or, or something like that drop table, right? You always need backups. There's either human error or there's physical hardware um, issues that will arise at some point during the life cycle of an application. Always do backups. Yep. Good question. Um, do, 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 let's see. Do backups, backups. Yep. Always good habit. Absolutely. All right. Let me go ahead here and I will show you guys what OpenEBS does. Now, OpenEBS like I said, is a tool to create pools of storage volumes that can be- Sorry, We got one more. Oh, yep, yep. What about oh, consistency of the database? Yeah. Will that somehow get impacted? Um, well, we can we can talk about Cassandra at some point. Uh, Cassandra is, is kind of the, the king when it comes to distributed databases. Uh, I will probably push that question till later. <laughs> <laughs> um, consistency is actually a kind of a talk all of its own. It's actually really cool. Short version, short answer is um, no, there's actually anti-entropy tools that will keep things consistent. Uh, it's something called strong consistency as opposed to an absolute consistency, but it's you know, more than adequate to handle um, handle uh, any concerns you'd really have. Uh, another question, why is yeah. there a PVC and PV? How does using a PVC help? Oh yeah, yeah, good question. So. The PVC is the claim on the volume. The PV is the Kubernetes object that is the volume. So if you think about it, if you, if you walk into a shop and you say to the, the you know, shopkeep, I want uh, one of those candy bars over there. That is the persistent volume claim. The transaction that happens, you, you giving them money in exchange for that object, and then you carrying that object out in your grocery bag is the claim of the object. The persistent volume is the candy bar. So basically the, the pod has to lay claim that is referenceable, checkable. You can actually do a describe on a PVC and, and follow the path of where that claim runs. It, think about it like a contract between the pod and the actual volume itself. Does that answer the question? Hopefully that does. And a little bit of leg here, so I'll move on and keep an eye on the chat. Okay. So in OpenEBS, we're actually extending the master. Um, oh, we got some more questions. All right. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to get to OpenEBS. We'll see. Um, is, it, uh, is it how great companies have the servers all the time running? As one crashes, the other automatically deploys. Yeah. Um, so if you ever are in a situation where you need 100% uptime, there's uh, kind of some methodologies and some thinking that you can employ to achieve that. And one of the ways um, was kind of the way Cassandra did it. That was actually one of the problems Cassandra was trying to solve. Uh, and one of the things you can do in Kubernetes with applications is you create active, active applications. So if you think about it in the context of Kubernetes, 
right? We have many, many workers and these workers could be incredibly distributed. Like we could even run them across multiple providers if we really wanted to, if we really wanted to get crazy here. Um, and so say if we had you know, the worst happen and maybe like AWS or Azure or someone just crashed, like catastrophic failure, you know, kind of apocalyptic event, right? But one of our other providers was online. We still have instances, reachable instances of say our web front end, if that's what we're running as some sort of a, a web app or something, we could have instances of that running in the other provider and a load balancer that would know that the, the instances over here are down, those instances are up and it would route you there. So it's active, active. You're actually able to interact with any and all instances um, at the same time, meaning that there's no, there's no downtime. Now, key thing to point out, you have to set it up that way in Kubernetes. You have to actually use the load balancer, have multiple instances of your app. If you just have a single instance of whatever it is you're running, like I had a web UI and I just had a single pod that, that just was running that web UI and that went down, there'd be downtime, right? Because it takes time for that to, to redeploy. If I have Kubernetes control loop, then go and just you know, auto redeploy that because it's unhealthy and then the whole... Uh, Pro basically says that's unhealthy. Okay, redeploy. That takes time for that whole process to happen. So if you really want persistence, you're going to want to deploy multiple copies of whatever this stateless application is. Now, when we're working with stateful workloads, it's a little different, right? Because we actually have data. We ha we can't just nuke something and spin it back up. So um, this is where Cassandra, there's some other databases that do some similar-ish things, but I I'm going to talk about Cassandra because it's what I'm you know, most, most an expert at, um, where basically you have active, active nodes that handle consistency via quorum protocol. So basically they get a 51% consensus agreement across a cluster. Uh, before they actually consider an operation successful. So using that, you can actually maintain correctness of your data, but you also get the advantage of you can lose entire portions of your database or access to entire portions of your database and still be online. And you can actually replace individual nodes never going down. So similar concept, but the stateful versus stateless problem uh, presents kind of a different set of challenges to each. Yeah. Um, let's see, can you please explain persistent volume claims again in brief, having a bit of confusion? Yeah, no worries. Um, so a persistent volume claim, oh, here, I'll, I'll use this. I'll use this as an example. If you buy a house, you end up having a purchase agreement and a title to that house. Those, the purchase agreement and the title aren't the physical house. They're a, a record of ownership of that house. So you in this scenario would be the pod, right? You're the thing that needs the house to live with, <laughs> to live in, right? So the pod in this case, the, the person goes out and they purchase the physical object, the physical object, the house is the persistent volume and they get the claim, the, the deed, the title to that house is the claim that says they own the house. So if someone wants to check on my, uh, you know, who owns this particular uh, piece of storage, we can check the claims and see which one I own. Or if you want to see what house I own, just go check my PVC, my, my uh, persistent volume claim, and you can see which particular object, which pers uh, particular volume I have ownership of. Does that make sense? Uh, particular pod is where I access physical hard drive. 
Yep. Yep, exactly. The, the PVC is actually generally defined in its own YAML. The PV is defined as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. All right, how are we doing? Got a couple more minutes. Uh, Bart, do you want me to take 15 minutes for questions or do you want me to just keep going with this? I think uh, keep going and then I think we, if there are questions that we don't get to, we can continue the conversation in Slack. So folks keep asking your questions, but then we'll hang on to them. And like I said, if we need to continue the conversation there, we can. Awesome, all right. So again, looking at Open EBS. So this is the uh, Open EBS control plane. And it has a couple different components. It has an operator, which is basically a custom control loop. So it specifies a specific behavior different from the Kubernetes uh, standard behavior of you know, an object. So in this particular case, it's providing some persistence um, of some things we don't want to go away if, uh, you know, if, if we were to lose it, we wouldn't want it to just go away. We wouldn't be able to bring up that same object again. Um, we have the Maya API server. Maya API server extends the Kubernetes API server, allowing us to run kubectl commands that are specific to OpenEBS. So you can actually create OpenEBS resources using kubectl. It's actually really important for an, kind of an ease of use standpoint. Um, next, we have the local PV. Local PV provisioner. And local PV provisioner is what actually goes out and provisions these persistent volumes. It takes that physical device and it, it creates this, this pool that's these Kubernetes resources. Because if you think about it, Kubernetes doesn't really care if it's a hard drive, if it's an SSD drive, if it's a sand, it doesn't know, it doesn't care. It looks at these, these, this pool of resources. So local PV provisioner is what actually does that work for you. Okay, on the node itself, we have this other key component and we're gonna attach that to the kubelet. It's called NDM or node device manager. And what that does is that goes out and that will actually pull, just like the C advisor goes and pulls compute resources on that particular worker, the NDM maintains the local pool of storage resources on that particular cluster and works with the local provisioner to create and maintain the pool of devices to be leased. So all of this stuff we had to do down here, instead of referencing something directly in our storage class, so instead of the hard drive being directly referenced, we just say our storage class and we define it as open, oops, open EBS. And open EBS does all of that work for us, maintains that pool. And when we uh, have a persistent volume claim, we just reference that storage class, which points it to open EBS, which points it to that pool of drives and all of the leasing and, and releasing of drives happens from there automatically. Um, can we replace uh, etcd with Redis? Oh yeah, um, I, don't, I don't think you can. I'm not hundred percent on that. I don't know why you would first off. Um, etcd is really, really lightweight. It's really, really good at what it does. It's it's kind of a um, a very simple, durable key value store. 
I understand where you're going with, you know, well, Redis is a key value store. Could you actually uh, kind of plug and play some of these components? I don't think there would be any good reason to ever, at least not, nothing I can think of. Um, doesn't mean doesn't mean I've thought of every, you know, eventuality, but um, I wouldn't probably try it unless I had a really, really good reason. And I'm not aware of anyone, at least I've never heard of anyone doing it before. So, yeah. Um, okay, does that make sense though on OpenEBS where it, basically it handles all of that drive discovery, all that pool management, that resource management for you so you don't have to direct wire these things. It makes it a little more durable because again, we would have to directly reference the physical hard, you know, hardware from our storage classes if we didn't do it with something like OpenEBS. Okay. Hopefully that was helpful. All right. Well, with that, I think um, that's about all I've got for you guys today. So Bart, I'm going to hand it off back to you and we can go from there. Uh, before we finish up, I think this was awesome because a lot of a lot of the folks that are in our community are, you know, struggling with this, this notion of like, okay, I maybe touched a little bit of Kubernetes. I've done some stuff about microservices. I understand the differences um, uh, when we're talking about different kinds of architecture maybe an intro to containers, some knowledge about Docker, but then when we're taking this jump to say like, now we're gonna talk about data on Kubernetes and stateful data, stateful workloads, things like that, that's where things get a little bit blurry. So this is really helpful. Are there other things that you would recommend? We can leave resources aside for now, but in terms of the different, you know, things that we've been talking about, we've been talking about, you know, clusters, pods, nodes, we've just mentioned ETCD. We've also been obviously talking about PV and PVC, um, different things that are gonna come up there. Other things that folks should keep in mind as they're beginning on this journey that were helpful for you or that you find yourself question, you know, frequently asked questions on Eric's side? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, first thing I would throw out, and this is actually a resource thing, uh, go to YouTube often, often. Um, there's a number of really good YouTube channels out there on pretty much everything I've talked about here. Um, I believe there's one, it's called something along the lines of like Tech with Nina. Yeah. Uh, there's Network Chuck. There, there's a lot of these people who, who are good at taking a beginner level approach to the, the content and, and just explaining it on a really, really, really informative, helpful, practical level. There, you know, it's really easy to talk about all this stuff in, in theoretical terms, but when you can get someone who actually sits down and takes a practical approach to how would you actually go about doing this, um, for me, at least, that's that's been one of the best resources I've found. Um, the other thing, like I said, is the Kubernetes docs. And you know what? I'm actually going to link a couple docs. Um, one on stateful sets. I'm just going to throw them in the chat here. Um, storage classes. And then persistent volumes, which is also going to have the documentation for <clears throat> PVCs. So go ahead and check those out. Um, oh, it might have blocked me. Nope. Oh, they're there. OK, perfect. Um, if you need the docs, those are the, the Kubernetes docs on each of these different components we talked about. Um, highly recommend you read Kubernetes documentation. I know documentation is sometimes very hard to consume. Kubernetes does a very good job at trying to keep it simple, keep it understandable, and, and not use a ton of buzzwords. So highly, highly, highly um, recommend you, you read the docs when it comes to Kubernetes. Yeah, tech with Nana. Yep, that's absolutely. Yeah, you had also mentioned because you had mentioned, uh, you know, Longhorn, and we had a session with Sam about that. So if you're interested in knowing more about that specifically, you've got that. 
We've also, the thing is, if you just type Eric's name in, in, in YouTube, you're going to find plenty of other talks that might build on the concepts that were mentioned here today um, with a you know, bigger degree of complexity. I think also a really good point of what he says is, and we mentioned this a lot, read the documentation. Um, it'll give you the vocabulary. It will make you go research other things so you get more comfortable. And then what he was saying as well too is, I think the best way to, to, to be working on this is to try to put it into practice, which is why as a community, we're starting to now build out projects and we're inviting folks to get involved in this um, so that we can directly apply the concepts that we're talking about. We have the videos, we've got the tutorials, we have the people with the expertise. So let's take those concepts and actually put them into action. Um, so anyway, you'll see more things about that coming out on Slack. Any other questions from the audience before we finish today? Anything else you'd like to know? Career-wise as well, you know, Eric, you've been in DevRel a lot. Is there anything else that you would give as, as general advice to someone who's worked a lot in developer relations? Yeah, I'd, I'd say find something you enjoy doing because it's not a job. <laughs> but uh, that's that's fairly generic advice, but I, I think it really holds true. You know, I got into developer relations because I had a passion for a specific group of things. That passion came out to the point where I was actually uh, approached uh, with this job opportunity. Um, you know, a lot of people in DevRel are, are here because we're passionate. We love what we do. We love the technology. We think it's cool. We actually get enthusiastic and fired up about these things. So, um, you know, if you want to go a DevRel kind of route, I would say find something that you can really truly be uh, enthusiastic about. Um, and even if you want to just be an engineer or something a little more traditional, um, you know, the same holds true. You can do a lot better job in life if uh, you're excited to wake up on Monday morning and, and get to go play with cool stuff. I will throw out, um, just in case anyone wants to, it's just a resource I threw together. I, I used this in a previous talk. So um, we had lab instances, um, but through uh, my learning, I just threw the link in, in chat there. Um, yeah. Setting up OpenEBS, uh, kind of the, the A to Z, just going down three node cluster, setting up uh, you know, an actual persistent uh, volume, storing something on a persistent volume. Um, pretty simple uh, overall lab, but um, check it out. Feel free to use it. Not, you know, it's, it's all, it's all up to you. And that's uh, sponsored by Maya data. That's stuff that they've sponsored content wise. So um, yeah, feel free to check it out. Very, very good stuff. We got another question as well. People just asking about what exactly is DevRel. And this is good too, yeah. because is it marketing? Is it not marketing? Is it human resources? Is it just technical advice? How do you define it? Yeah, absolutely not marketing, no marketing. Um, <laughs> what I am is I'm an engineer who gets to talk to other engineers and try to make them successful. Um, you know, I always make the, the joke, but it's really true. I try not to know even how much the, the products I work with cost because I just want to find the best solution regardless of, of what, you know, what those prices are. I love open source. DevRel is all about taking the passion and enthusiasm for technology out to other people and helping them to be successful with it. Um, it's kind of a newer, uh, a newer role. It's only been around for probably, well, about five years in its current form, about maybe eight in, in really any form whatsoever. Um, and, and it's really just uh, about helping people, building communities, interacting on technology um, and, and teaching. A lot, a lot, a lot of teaching in there. Um, looks like we've got another question, excuse me, question here. Hi, Eric, you mentioned Cassandra is a database that's really good at a consistency requirement. Cassandra is NoSQL. What about SQL databases? Ah, well, there are a lot of good, consistent SQL databases, but the, the key difference here is distributed uh, SQL databases, not so much. If we're talking about actual active, active distribution in a database, you're going to need to go with something NoSQL. 
Um, and you're going to, I would say, probably want to look at Cassandra as an option there. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, what's the difference between DevRel, de developer or evangelist and developer advocate? Well, devel uh, developer evangelist is marketing's feeble attempt to become a uh, developer advocate. Um, developer advocacy is is DevRel. That's I consider myself a developer advocate um, under a, a DevRel uh, umbrella. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. All right. Um, thanks everyone for attending. This was amazing. We'll have the artwork coming out a little bit later because our artist has another commitment today. But uh, Eric is readily available in in our Slack um, if you want to reach out and ask questions, get some advice. I'm pretty sure we're going to be asking you to come back, Eric, to give some kind of a part two, because this was really, really good. Um, oh, we got a one more follow-up question before we finish. What about MongoDB? Um, MongoDB is not necessarily distributed in the same way. Uh, it is, it's kind of a document store with sharding is a, well, that's not the best way to describe it, but, but think about it more in those terms than to say a true distributed active active database. Fair enough. Good. Um, once again, thanks everyone for attending. This was very, very good, very interactive. Eric, you did an amazing job as always, as usual. Uh, so that being said, we'll we'll finish that up for this. This is a it's been our second meetup of the week. Um, we'll have plenty more coming. You'll see all that in on our website. If you haven't subscribed yet on YouTube, please do so. Check us out on Twitter. Um, lots of news coming out soon about things related to KubeCon. We'll be doing a co-located event there. Remember, uh, we have all the instructions. If you want to write a summary about the session we did today, publish it on LinkedIn, give Eric a shout out, give the DOK a shout out. Um, you know, we'll be choosing the best summary and getting that published on our blog. So if you want to get published on the DOK blog, feel free to check that out. It's in our Slack. You can D, uh, just DM me and I'll be happy to help you out with that. Uh, Eric, thanks a lot, man. Have a good one. Absolutely. All right. Take it easy, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh. Uh...